I wonder what Nicodemus thinks is going to happen when he goes to meet Jesus, as our gospel text says, by night. What is he hoping to find? Is he bringing a pressing question, a concern, a situation causing him anxiety or pain? What, what motivates this guy to take the risk of meeting with this shadowy figure, this wonder worker, this rabble rouser? Perhaps he's coming as a uh, kind of an emissary from the group, the Pharisees, who at least in John's gospel are most opposed to Jesus and to his ministry. Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could do the works that you do apart from the presence of God. That's a kind of an olive branch, right? It's a concession. It's an opening gambit. It's an attempt to find some common ground with someone who is purported to be, at least on the surface of things, Nicodemus's great enemy. And Jesus isn't willing to play the game. Right off the bat, Jesus kind of frames out his position. He says, truly, to, truly, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. And Nicodemus really has no idea what that means. And frankly, neither do we. <laughs> that's, a, that's a mysterious phrase. Literally, the, the Greek word is born from up. Sometimes we translate that as born again. That's actually where that whole idea comes from. Born again, born from heaven. There is not a good English word that can capture the double meaning of this Greek word, which at the same time is both positional, can mean born from a higher place, born from heaven. At the same time, it can be temporal, right? Born a second time, born anew, born again. Both of those meanings are carried in this word. And Nicodemus kind of grabs onto the second meaning, right? How can a person come out of his mother's womb a second time? He's thinking temporally. And Jesus responds, or seems to respond, by explicating the other meaning, what it means to be born from above. He says, what is born of the flesh is flesh, what is born of the spirit is spirit. You must be born of the spirit, you must be born from heaven, by water, by the spirit. It's a weird phrase, it's an enigmatic idea, and it throws Nicodemus's whole world into a kind of a tailspin. He is uh, besieged, if you like, with doubt. I've kind of always had a soft spot in my heart for Nicodemus. I played him in a church play, once upon a time. Long fake beard, a big Pharisee hat, big sweeping, it was a great costume. I uh, played the heck out of it. And we assume, because of the way that Nicodemus is usually depicted, that he is an older man, right? That he's Jesus' elder, an older guy, a wiser guy. And I think that's because of this question that he asks Jesus. How can somebody be born a second time once he has grown old. And we assume that that's a question that has meaning for Nicodemus personally. There's a beautiful kind of poignancy, I think, in that question. How does somebody start over after they've grown old? And Nicodemus is kind of taken aback by Jesus' answer. You know, he's, this is a religious leader, right? Nicodemus is someone who has spent his life studying scripture, interpreting texts. He knows the tradition, he spends hours in prayer, he's well advanced in the spiritual project, he spent 30, 40, 50 years building his reputation, he's established his household and his influence, he's, he's kind of a local celebrity, right? We think that actually the reference to Nicodemus in this text is a reference to Nicodemus Ben-Gurion, who was a well-respected uh, Jew living in Jerusalem in the first century. He was renowned for his hospitality, his generosity. A bunch of other non-biblical texts refer to this guy. He was pretty, pretty well-known. He's built a reputation. And now he's, if you like, preparing to enter his retirement years and enjoy the fruits of his labor. And here's Jesus telling him, hey, buddy, time to start over. 
somehow the spiritual life is about reclaiming some kind of ignorance, some kind of infancy, going back into the primal darkness from which you emerged and being ready to re-enter the world fresh and unstained and new and vulnerable and helpless like the infant that you once were. I mean, after everything this guy has done, after everything he's accomplished, Jesus is asking Nicodemus, hey, are you ready to start the whole thing again? The Buddhists have a phrase for this. It's shoshin. We usually translate that as beginner's mind. It's a phrase that is famously associated with the Zen teacher, Shunru Suzuki. In shoshin, Suzuki writes, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are only a few possibilities. For the beginner, there's nothing but potential, right? You ask a lot of questions, you're open to possibility. But experts learn answers. And so for the Zen practitioner, the process of learning and development is in some ways about resisting that, kind of engaging in a process of deliberate unlearning. In order to advance, you learn to cultivate the discipline of letting go of your preconceptions, starting every day with fresh eyes and new questions. It's a beautiful idea to think about, but it's kind of daunting for those of us who have spent a lot of our lives earning our bona fides and advanced degrees, working hard to master our professions and our passions, our life's work in a, in a world, a society that rewards competence and confidence. So many of our spiritual traditions actually teach the opposite. Let go of everything you think you know. Maybe especially the stuff you think you know for sure. The best response to a question to which you think you have the answer is actually to begin by saying, I really don't know. I don't know, especially when I think I do know. I start from the place of wonder, never from the place of expertise. That's an interesting discipline. A couple weeks ago, as all of the uh, anxiety around coronavirus was just beginning to touch U.S. shores, a woman posted a story on Twitter about uh, going to have a drink with a couple of her girlfriends at a bar. She lives in L.A. She wrote, My friend's boyfriend listened quietly for a good 45 minutes at the bar while all of us shared our corona coronavirus fears and theories. And finally, she says, after a, almost an hour, he finally said, yeah, no, that's all wrong, at which time we found out that he is on the team managing the coronavirus response at the L.A. Health Department. The story got a lot of play, right? A bunch of people weighing in, some people supposing that the guy was probably so exhausted after a day of working on coronavirus that he just didn't have the energy to engage in the gossip of a bunch of ladies at a bar. A bunch of other people commending the guy, right, for not immediately jumping into mansplain the situation. If you're familiar with mansplaining, you know that it's like the exact opposite of beginner's mind, right? That's when people, and they're usually men, jump into a conversation by saying, well, actually, and then proceed to explain the situation to you whether or not you are looking for that explanation. That's the joy of mansplaining. Finally, the woman who had, who had posted this original story explained that her friend's boyfriend had actually seen in this conversation that he was listening to an invaluable opportunity to learn and listen unobserved to actual people's real fears so that he and his team could message more appropriately in the crisis. It actually became this beautiful kind of object lesson in the benefits of practicing shoshin, cultivating beginner's mind, the ability for an expert who knows everything there is to know about a subject to sit there quietly and just listen as non-experts spout their gossip and their rumor and their unformed opinions as ways of understanding what's really going on, as a way of listening actually underneath the gossip to where people's real fear lies. 
This guy knows how to check his expertise at the door, not dominate a conversation, not attempt to add value to a conversation, and instead learn everything he can about the lives of the people, the real lives of the people whom he is entrusted with the job of protecting. It's a guy in a, in a completely secular, non-religious context, actually, who has figured out what it means to be born from above. And here he is, practicing that art, practicing this discipline of Shoshin, the art of open and curious non-knowing in high anxiety, critical times. I mean, this is one of the things, I think, that disappears pretty quickly in a time of rampant fear and anxiety, when nobody knows what's going to happen next. And so we, we all do, right? We cling to rumors and half-truths and exploded fears. We lose our ability to listen deeply and non-anxiously. This willingness to stay open and curious, that all ebbs really quickly when we're afraid of contamination, when we're afraid of getting sick, when we're afraid of passing something along to somebody else. In church, a lot of the anxiety has centered around the use of the common cup, right? This chalice of wine that we offer at this altar every Sunday, as Christians have done for thousands of years, and some churches have decided, you know, it's time to suspend the common cup, right? We're not ready to make that decision yet here at Trinity. Um, and that's, although we encourage you to use your, you know, use your best sense. I tend to get a little nerdy about this stuff because I used to serve a congregation where one of the women who had actually, she's an epidemiologist and had spent like 20 years, built her whole career on studying use of the common cup and germ passing. Um, and we were the first person to tell you, like, it's actually a lot safer to actually drink from that thing than it is for you to get in your car and drive here. Um, because it's made of precious metals and it has, it's alcohol with a high content and our mouths are actually a lot more sanitary than our hands are. So she would say, please don't intinct, just drink from the cup. And there is absolutely zero evidence that drinking from a common cup has ever gotten anybody sick. They've been studying this thing for 50 years. So I tend to nerd out about this. You should make your own decisions, right? You are adults and we trust you. And you understand why we get squeamish about stuff like a common cup with the, the fears that are swirling all around us, right? It's not about containing infection. That's about managing our fear, right? We're not being born from above. We're searching frantically for some means to control what is fundamentally an uncontrollable situation at least as far as I am concerned, right? The reason that you want to go out and stock up on toilet paper, right, is not because toilet paper is going to do you any good in a quarantine. It's because having your cupboards full makes you feel safe. And none of us are safe, right? We are not safe. We don't know what we're facing. We don't know how it's going to play out. Anything we can do to feel like we're in control of our lives feels like the most important thing for us to do right now. That's not about create, cultivating beginner's mind, right? That's not, a, that's not being born from above. This is not a time, we tell ourselves. It's not a time to practice radical hospitality or holy curiosity or childlike openness and wonder. This is a time to batten down the hatches, practice suspicion, stop touching your face, stop wash, start washing your hands. It's a time to be careful with one another. It's a time to be suspicious of people who might infect you, what's born of the flesh is flesh, what's born of the spirit is spirit, and when my flesh and my spirit are afraid, there is not a lot of room for being born from above. So I get it, right? I, I don't mean to suggest that in a time of widespread anxiety and the very real threat of infection that we should get sloppy. Please do use the hand sanitizers that are in your pew. 
When we get to the piece in a moment, try, just for the day, try giving an elbow bump or a fist bump. You don't actually have to shake hands. And maybe this is a good opportunity for us to improvise with some different ways of passing the piece. You can give a little bow of acknowledgement. There's lots of ways to pass the piece. We don't have to, you know, we don't have to freak out about this. We are adults. I am confident that we can figure out how to maintain our practices without getting hysterical and hand-wringing about it. It's just going to require a little bit of flexibility and a little bit of holy curiosity. At the same time, I think it's important for us not to let the rampant anxiety of this moment blind us to what makes us distinctive as individuals and as a community. It might actually be that in, in moments of heightened fear and anxiety with all the unknowns that are out there, times like this might weirdly be our kind of our laboratory for cultivating a kind of beginner's mind to actually practice Shoshin in moments like this, to learn what it means to be born from above, to start from the beginning, to learn a second way or a different path or a new procedure. I mean, Nicodemus is more than a little bit put off when Jesus, suspects that, when Jesus suggests that he might have to do some things differently, to right, re-examine his life and his choices, maybe change some practices. Nicodemus has been dipping his wafer in the chalice since he was 10 years old. Right? He is not changing that practice now. And Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, dude, you've got to be open to change. You've got to be really ready to improvise a little bit when the situations are different. Change it up. Respond to new circumstances, not by panicking and freaking out and doubling down on what you know, not with hand-wringing, not with retrenchment, not with suspicion. No, you respond to anxiety, you respond to panic by opening your heart even wider and opening your eyes and your ears more profoundly, engaging with the people who come into your life with a greater hospitality and a greater openness and a greater responsiveness and grace. It's time like, times like this that our true colors come out to fly. That's true for us as individuals. That's true for communities, too. If this city goes on lockdown, right, if fear and contagion are stalking our streets, if everybody in the media is telling you to be suspicious of everybody you're meeting, okay, what does it look like in those circumstances for a community that has been practicing radical hospitality to practice being born from above? What kind of a community do we want to be when the stakes are high? What does radical hospitality really look like in a time of rampant suspicion and fear? I think it starts when I get better at reconsidering my firmly held convictions, when I'm prepared to listen really deeply and maybe even be open to changing my mind and doing something a little bit differently. The kingdom of God happens when I learn how to practice starting over right, over and over and over again. And my response to anxiety tells me a lot about who I am, and it tells us a lot about the community that we really are. More than anything we say about what we practice when things are good, these are the times that test the metal of that. What will it mean in these anxious days for you and me to be born from above, to be born from up? How might we practice? being born again.